0: Good morning, brothers and sisters, and welcome to Grace Christian Church. It is always really encouraging to gather and to spend time not only in worship of, through song and through giving, uh, but also to spend some time in the Word. Before we get into the Word, I do want to make a quick announcement. We are still trying to work things out regarding the Internet. The Telstra has uh, held up the equipment and the technician being able to come out. So we're still, I guess you could say, winging it in regards to trying to get things sorted out, but please pray that those things will come through soon so we can do an actual online stream sooner rather than later. But God's in control, and we know that, and we commit ourselves to the Lord as we look to Him and know that in His time, all things will work together for good, for the glorifying of His name, for the extending of His kingdom, for the edifying of His people, and I'm very excited to see what God will do in the coming months. Uh, So continue to please be praying as well with the situation as more cases are popping up all around Sydney. Um, Please be careful. Please be very wise and considerate of those that are around you as well, especially those that are at risk. Um, But yeah, we really need to to be very wise in what we do. We want to keep a good testimony um, and just be very careful in what's going to be going on in the next few weeks. So uh, if you've got your Bibles, please turn to the book of Joel. Joel is a wonderful minor prophet book. Minor because of its size, not because of its content, because we have within the book of Joel the great blessing that is quoted by Peter at the day of Pentecost when the church is birthed. But if you turn to the book of Joel, to provide a bit of context, Joel being a contemporary of Jeremiah who prophesied to the same people as well. But the nation of Judah is apostate and without a king. The true king has been hidden away at the temple of the Lord as his mother, Athaliah, is actually ruling and continuing to lead the nation of Judah down the paths of apostasy. It's not until a few years later when Joash is seven years old that he is appointed as king in Second Kings chapter eleven, verse twelve, and these are the first glimmers of hope for the nation of Israel. I think they were getting a bit fed up with living a life apart from God, living a life apart from what they were originally designed to do. I guess you could say. And so these first glimmers of hope were being, were being established with Joash being established as king. And Jehoiada, who was the high priest at the time, who makes a covenant for the people and for the king and for the people of Israel as well. In 2 Kings chapter 11, verse 17, we read, Jehoiada then made a covenant between the Lord and the king and people that they would be the Lord's people. You see, the timing is right as Joash seeks to rebuild the temple of the Lord for Joel, like I said, who was a contemporary of Jeremiah, to come and to proclaim a message of closeness and intimacy that God desires to have with his people. Such relationship with God is not so that the people, or sorry, please forgive me, is not so that God gets anything out of it, but rather that the people would. You see, God is He's totally self-existent. He is self-existent. Sustaining, He is perfect in every way. He is the great I am. So it is not so God receives anything really, but rather because of his perfection, the people are the ones that benefit from getting to know him. They receive from him. No, we receive from him and from being in relationship with him. Because knowing him as our king and as our God brings to us a completeness, a wholeness as his subject and as his child. So let's open in a word of prayer and let's look at the book of Joel together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the lessons that are held within. I pray now as we open your word that you will minister to our hearts and that you will reveal to us the greatness of who you are, And that you will stir our hearts with excitement as we learn and as we grow to know you more and more. Guide us now, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, my brother Jono is our Bible reader today. I would like to hand things over to him as he reads the word to us this morning. Thanks, Jono. Very cool, John. I thank you so much for that, Jonathan. Now, I know it seems like a pretty strange reading because it is full of consequences to a nation that has gone their own way. You look in the reading, the nation of Israel is not in a good state. The prosperity that they had experienced from previous kings who walked in the ways of the Lord is slowly being eroded away by kings that, bit by bit, lay aside the things of the Lord and replaced it with ungodliness, with idolatry, and with other gods. And in such courses of action, it resulted in the consequences that are referred to in Joel chapter 1, verses 4-12. to 12. As read, you have the locusts that ate everything. you got wine that is snatched from the people's lips. you got a nation that has invaded his land. You have wasted vine vineyards and ruined fig trees. you get got those that are mourning and those that are grieving. Their offerings are cut off from the house of the Lord. you got the priests who are in mourning. you got the fields that are ruined, the ground that is dried up, the grain that is destroyed, the new wine that is dried up, and olive oil that fails. You have the harvest of the field that is destroyed. And in verse 12, all the trees of the field are dried up. And then it says this at the end. Surely the people's joy is withered away. What a state to be left in. Suffering locusts. They were suffering thirst. They were suffering oppression and and famine. They were suffering isolation. They were suffering all sorts of things. But remember, this is the state of a nation that has placed themselves by sorry that have placed themselves in this circumstance by choosing to follow after other gods or to follow as it says in Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 13 to follow or go after cisterns broken cisterns that can hold no water which basically means going after something that promises some type of satisfaction and quenching for life's desires and finding it empty completely without substance. And as Israel took a little time to enter into this state, what you'll find in our spiritual lives is that we as Christians enter into a similar state, not in one big jump, but little by little, bit by bit, step by step. And we find that our relationship with Jesus over a period of time starts to dwindle as we lose our zeal and desire for the things of God. And, and so we may not experience literally suffering from locusts, but we have those things in life that consume us and eat away at our joy in the Lord. We may not have literally like a thirst in regards looking for something to quench our thirst, but we, we so what we do is we try to find something that will satisfy our thirsts outside of the things of God. And like when you take a drink of water, you'll find yourself thirsting again, as opposed to the water that we would never drink from, as we're told of in John chapter 4. We find ourselves oppressed, beaten down by the harshness of life, where there, there seems to be one thing after another, after another. It's like being at the beach, and it's just wave after wave after wave, and you feel yourself knocked over, and we can feel like that in life as well. Famine, where we're looking for sustenance in life that grants us an enduring contentment, or even isolation. We find we're always trying to look for validation from what other people think of us, or what other people hold, or whether other people hold value to us, as opposed to being content in our relationship with God. And that sort of state, once again, is not one big jump, but rather a little by a little and by a little, by basic neglect of the ways and of the things of God. Charles Spurgeon said this, who are they that are the most likely to fall into open sin? They are those who walk at a distance from Christ. I believe that when any professor falls into a filthy sin. it is not the beginning, but the culmination of a process and growth in iniquity. The open sin comes at the heels of a long succession of neglected prayers, of neglected worship of God and the family, and neglect of all communion with Christ, and negligence of every good thing. It is that little bit. After a little bit, after a little bit, inch by inch, step by step. And as we quench the spirit, as we grieve the spirit, we find whether intentionally or unintentionally that we find ourselves in this state of spiritual sleepiness. Spiritual sleepiness, spiritual apathy that sometimes, sometimes the Lord allows us to go through and allows us to go through such harshness in our own lives in order to awaken us and refocus us, that as he pricks us to wake up and look about what's going on in life, then, then we have that opportunity to be reestablished and to start prioritizing the things of God as over the things of ourselves. And how does the Lord do this to the people of Judah in the book, through Joel? How does the Lord seek to, to prick? Well, actually, they've experienced the, the pricking themselves. They've experienced that awakening from that slumber because of what was read in chapter 1. But how does he do this? He does this through the revelation of himself. He does this through the knowledge that God is present. The knowledge that God is present. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Joel chapter 2, and I'm just gonna read verse 27. In verse 27, we read this: Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and that there is no other. Never again will my people be ashamed. Within this one verse, we have three basic and vital truths that encourage us in our awakening from our spiritual, our spiritual relaxation, our spiritual lethargy. That first one is the knowledge that God is present. You will know that I am in Israel. There are these familiar verses all throughout Scripture to comfort us and to remind ourselves of how God is directly involved in the lives of His people. And that he is directly in the midst of them at all times, like was referred to in Revelation chapter 1. We have the likes of, say, Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, when he says, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He's there. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, we read how I will never leave you nor forsake you. He is there. There's David's proclamation of Psalm 139, verse 8, where he says, If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. He is there. Or the wonderful promise that our Lord Jesus makes in Matthew chapter 18, verse 20, When two or three are gathered in my name, there am I with them. He is a God who is present. He is present. There and while we have like an understanding of such truth and know intellectually that He is present with us, that intellect, that intellectual knowledge we have, the extent of what that really means and how much that is really lived out comes in the midst of hardship and trial. Because in the midst of hardship and trial, though while we know He is there more often than not, we think we're alone. Because in the midst of hardship and trial, one of two things can happen. One, the enemy isolates us and gets us to doubt whether he actually is present, whether the Lord actually cares. It's what he did to Eve in the garden by isolating and focusing all his attention on her and causing her to sin. Does the Lord really care? Did the Lord really say? It is what he did to stir up Cain in the murdering of his brother Abel. And it is how he chatters away in our ear when things take a turn for the worse in our lives. And then we question, Lord, where are you? Are you present? And we doubt the reality of this truth. That's one of the things that can happen. When we go through hardship and trial, the other, on the other side of it, God can be seen working in the midst of that same hardship and of that same trial. He is able to, like Israel's priests, take my shame and grant me a double portion in himself. Instead of disgrace, having my rejoicing and in my inheritance from him and that I can attain a joy everlasting as belonging to him in the midst of hardship and trial. Isaiah 61 verse 7 speaks of that. We have this ability, it's either one, we, we, get, we, we find ourselves apprehensive and aggravated towards the things of God, or two, depending on where we're looking, we can see God moving in those same difficulties. But you see, that knowledge, that knowledge of seeing God work and seeing God move in hardship, well, that's coupled with what and who I choose to see, what and who I choose to look at. You see, the knowledge that God is present does not deliver me from the hardship and trials in life and the harshness that life throws at us. But rather, when our focus is right, it may not necessarily be clear, but when our focus is right, that when we're looking at the right direction and seeing our lives in the greater context of God moving, then perhaps, at the very least, I can be stirred with this fact that God is doing something. I may not understand completely what it is, but I know He's doing something. Remember, the enemy wants you to feel alone, but the fact is you are his and he is mine. Well, he is ours, should I say, that I am his and he is mine. The enemy wants to steal, kill, and destroy our spiritual fellowship with him and that we feel joyless, that we feel unloved, and that we feel destroyed and worthless. But the fact remains that you are loved, that we can rejoice and that we are, we are deemed worthy because of Jesus Christ. There's this whole tagline running around at the moment that says facts don't care about your feelings. Now look, there is an element of truth to that for us as Christians that can be applied to our lives Even Now, yeah, that is true. Facts don't care about your feelings. But biblical facts, biblical facts don't disregard your feelings. Biblical facts rather establish and motivate you in the way where the expressing of your feelings is God-glorifying and God-honoring. We are called to walk by faith, not by sight, because it is faith that pleases God. It is faith that brings him, it is is faith that causes him to marvel and to be astonished. And you read in the Gospels when that happens, when he marvels at people's faith. But the knowledge that God is present because we are born into his family as his children and as a heavenly father, he holds us in his hand. John chapter 10 verse 29, that knowledge that... We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, to good works. In Ephesians chapter two, verse ten, which which implies and refers to the fact that we are being molded and shaped continually. That I am in the hands of a skillful potter as clay, and that as He shapes me as clay, He has within His mind's eye. a a vessel that will bring honor to him and that is useful for his purposes. Such is the blessing of knowing that he is present with us, the captain of our salvation, who has guaranteed our victory through the cross and who has granted us power through his resurrection. And you read some of the great men of old who have been living testimonies of this truth, Hudson Taylor, who took the gospel into China and he suffered immense loss he lost he married and lost his first wife, and then when he remarried, he lost his second wife. He lost a number of children during his time of ministering to the gospel, and yet at toward the end of his life, he proclaimed all glory to the Lord for allowing him the privilege to serve. Why? because he knew his God was present with him. He said this, quote, God's power is available power. We're a supernatural people, born again by a supernatural birth, kept by a supernatural power, sustained on supernatural food, taught by a supernatural teacher from a supernatural book. We're led by a supernatural captain in right paths to assured victories. That is what we've been granted in Jesus Christ. So when you feel alone, you are not, for you are God's child. When the enemy whispers in your ear and you feel isolated, you are not because you are part of God's family. When you feel defeated, man, in Christ, you are more than a conqueror. When you feel weak, it is then that the power of God rests upon you because when you're weak, then you are strong. When you complain and you feel like you're all alone, doing this all by yourself, like Elijah did, well, the fact is that there are many, many, many more who have not yet bowed the knee to Baal. The God who is present grants us his strength and trials by being present. Have you ever noticed how confident you are when you know you have the backing of somebody with authority, whether it be in your job, whether it be in your home, whether it be out in public? I mean, I know for a fact that the confidence that is granted when I've walked around with my brothers, because they're just monsters. I mean, as in big, you know, but the confidence that, you know that, I'm not talking about being a mob, I'm not talking about what's going on overseas or anything. No, I'm just saying there is a confidence in knowing when somebody is present with you. Our God, the creator of heaven and earth, he who spoke the universe into being, he is with us. The foundation of which begins with, not only knowing that he is present, comes along with this wonderful privilege of knowing his presence person. It says in verse 27 that he says, I am the Lord in the midst of Israel, that I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. I am amazed how the Lord expresses himself in so many ways in order to reveal his lordship and his presence with us. You see his lordship in his creativity the sheer variety of colors and smells and plants and people. We see his intent and his order by the way the world works and how the the laws that govern the universe's functions, how there are certain laws in place and those certain laws, whether it be mathematics or physics, whatever it might be, point to the ultimate law giver. We, We look at each other and see how we are created in the image of God And because we are relational beings, made in the image of God, points to the fact that he too is relational. I mean, we're not those people who may have a volleyball for a best friend. But we're told that he is the Lord. We are told biblically of his attributes that portray him as a whole being, that he is good. In Nahum 1:7, that we know He is holy in Leviticus 11:45. We know He is love in 1 John chapter 4 verse 8, and we know He is jealous in Exodus 34:14. We are given even greater insights. Of him being the Lord in his dealings with us as his creation, whether it be his hatred of sin in Psalm 5:5, 5, 5, his compassion and his understanding expressed in his dealing with Jonah and Nineveh in Jonah chapter 3, verse 10, as well as his guidance and protection with how he dealt with the deliverance of Israel from Egypt, with the destruction of Pharaoh's army, and with the leading of the people of Israel into the promised land which points to a very important truth for you and I to be aware of and to live out. And that important truth is that knowledge, the knowledge of God's person, must be a knowledge that is experienced relationally, not intellectually. We must experience a relationship, not think about it. See, intellectually, I can know all about the principles of how a successful relationship is to work. It's communication, it's, it's compromise, it's, it's sacrifice. I can, I can know all of those things. I can know about relating the principles of relating successful, successfully to another person, but none of those principles, none of those ideas, none of those thoughts mean anything unless they are actually being expressed in an actual relationship, unless I am in that relationship. And so I read in verse 27 that, yes, I am in my people's midst. I am in Israel. But he also states that I am the Lord. I am the great, I am the creator of heaven and earth. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. I am the God that delivered you. I am the God that leads you. I am the God that protects you. I am the Lord from whom the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor and of everything in heaven and on earth comes. I'm the being. 1 Chronicles 29, 11. I read in verse 12 of that same chapter, wealth and honor comes from him. The magnificence of who God is, is described all throughout Scripture. But what makes this description so amazing is that it's coupled with these two, these two words. These two words, these two amazing words. He says, I am the Lord your God. I'm the Lord your God, personally. I am a personal God. I am an involved God. I am an intimate God. I am an interacting God. I am your God. And we see the expression of this intimacy and involvement by what he does for his people and bringing them back to himself. And while some may argue at the unfairness of God allowing them to suffer so greatly, the suffering isn't because of God. The suffering is because they have forsaken God. The suffering is them choosing to live apart without Him. And yet, and yet, once again, even though it was a consequence of their choices, we see a God who is rich in mercy and shows them a love and drawing them back to Himself lovingly and compassionately And graciously, he says, Your God, Israel, has blessed you so that you will know, one, that I dwell in the midst of you, and two, that I am the Lord, your God, a personal, personable, knowable God. And the reason why I want to emphasize that is because he is the same now than what he was in Joel's day. The same message that he proclaimed to the people of Judah in Joel's day is the same principle and the same message that is being communicated to you and I now. Your God who demonstrated his love toward you by sending his son, Jesus. Your God who through Jesus' death on the cross broke the hold of Satan that he had on yours and my life. Your God, who through Jesus' resurrection granted a way to the Father by us becoming his child through believing in him. Your God, who had written your name in the book of life. Your God, who has made us His people. That is the message. And in the knowledge that He is present, and in the knowledge that He is our God, is then the knowledge of God's uniqueness. We read at the end of the verse, and that there is no other. There is no other. Never again will my people be ashamed. The uniqueness of God speaks volumes to the privileged position we have been given in Christ. We read about the Most High God who says this in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 25. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One. He stands alone. He stands preeminent. He stands transcendent. He stands supreme. He is the only God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 6. He is the Lord alone and there is no other. Apart from Him, there is no God. Isaiah 45, verse 5 the unique god that works uniquely that moves uniquely evident in how he deals with us as his people and with the people of Judah here uniquely once again when you look at the consequences of Israel's sin as we looked at the reading that Jonah read for us that placed them in this position of oppression of famine of desolation of grief and of isolation We read that the unique grace of God and how he blesses his people and what he does in drawing them back. See, for us, when someone offends us, before we're willing to let them back into our good graces, we want them to stew a little bit. We want them to know how much they hurt us and they're going to suffer every time they interact with us. It might be the silent treatment. Maybe they're looking at people through the side, doing the side eye, the side eye. Doing a cider, yeah. Or not laughing at a person's joke, which happens to me a lot. But, but we, we watch them, we watch them stew, and we, we want to see their, their genuine regret and remorse at offending us. And when we deem it okay, we say, all right then, you are now back in the fold. But even then, we hold that little mistake against them. That's what we do as people. It's our sinful nature. But praise the Lord that he is not like me. And that he is not like you. Because when you read in verses 19 through to 26, you read it everything the Lord does in order for them to know that he is in Israel and that he is their God, that he is the Lord. You read all of these things that he does so that his own people will know who he is. And so I want to do a bit of a comparison. I'm trying to race through this. It's a lot here. But, for example, in verse 10 of chapter 1, we read, "...the fields are ruined." The ground is dried up, the grain is destroyed, the new wine is dried up, the olive oil fails. Verse 19 of this chapter, chapter 2, I am sending you grain, this is what the Lord says, I am sending you grain, new wine and olive oil, enough to satisfy you fully. Never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations. In verse 6 of chapter 1 we read, A nation has invaded my land. In verse 20 of chapter 2, I will drive the northern horde far from you, pushing it into the parched and barren land. Its eastern ranks will drown in the Dead Sea, its western ranks in the Mediterranean Sea, and its stench will go up, its smell will rise. Surely he has done great things. Verse 21, do not be afraid, land of Judah. Be glad and rejoice. Surely the Lord has done great things. Verse 12 of chapter 1, all the trees of the field are dried up, Surely the people's joy is withered away. Verse 22 of chapter 2. Do not be afraid, you wild animals, for the pastures and the wilderness are becoming green. The trees are bearing fruit. The fig tree and the vine yield their riches. Verse 7 of chapter 1. It has laid waste my vines and ruined my fig trees. Verse 23 of chapter 2, Be glad, people of Zion, rejoice in the Lord your God, for He has given you the autumn rains because He is faithful. He sends you abundant showers, both autumn and spring rains, as before. Chapter 1, verse 11, The harvest of the field is destroyed. Verse 24 of chapter 2, The threshing floors will be filled with grain. The vats will overflow with new wine. And oil, and lastly, in verse 4 of chapter 1, the locusts swarm and they've eaten everything. Verse 25 and 26, I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten, the great locusts and the young locusts, the other locusts and the locusts swarm. My great army that I sent among you, you will have plenty to eat until you are full and you will praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked wonders for you never again will my people be ashamed. Verse 27, then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and that there is no other. Never again will my people be ashamed. All of this is done, so his People will know that He is God and that He is in the midst of them. It is not so other people, I'm going to do this so people know and the the world will see that I'm your God. I'm going to do this so people will know that I'm protecting you. No, He says, I'm doing all of this so that you, my very own people, will know who I am, where I am, and what I am doing. How unique He is. That is, is an amazing grace. That is the uniqueness of our God. Do you see how unique He is? The restoration of relationship, the uh, the abundance of blessing that goes beyond what is asked or even imagined. You see how He does more, goes further, stands stronger, exalts higher, forgives greater, secures longer, and goes deeper than anything, anyone, or any man-made religious God. Small g can go, give, or even attempt. That is our God. That is how unique He is. If you have a look at Isaiah 61 verses 3 to 7, even in the way he, he takes ashes and gives beauty, even in the way He takes, takes mourning and gives a garment of praise, He is unique in how He deals with us. This is our unique God. This is our God that in Christ manifests that same graciousness to you and me. That He gave life when I was dead, that he gave forgiveness when I was sinful, that he made me new when all I am is broken. The uniqueness of the Lord Jesus Christ is that he dwells in our midst and that he is relational with me. And he did so not because I'm good enough, but because I'm not good enough. He did this not because I'm worthy enough, but because he is love. And not because I can earn his favor, but rather because through Jesus Christ, favor is bestowed upon me. You see, this is the blessing of knowing God. The blessing of knowing He is present gives me comfort because He is there. The blessing of knowing his person shows that he is not only my God and my Lord and my Savior, but he knows me intimately, and I have the privilege of knowing him in turn. And the uniqueness of how he deals with me goes beyond anything, anything that anyone could say, anything that anyone could do. It goes beyond. It boggles the mind. It boggles the mind how so great a God has looked at you and me and loved on us so much that He has given us everything in His Son, Jesus Christ. That, that is the uniqueness of our God. And that, regardless of the situation that you're going through now, or the hardship that you're facing, or the whispering that's going on in your ear about how you're not this, that, or the other, that you are not to be governed by how you feel, but governed by these truths, governed by these realities and encouraged in them, the knowledge that he is present, the knowledge of his person, and the knowledge of his uniqueness. Because in that reveals knowledge about ourselves as well. Ourselves and that we are loved with an everlasting love. We are held within the hands of our Creator. And we are protected and sealed by his Spirit from now until eternally. I pray that you would be encouraged in some small way as we look at the blessing that we've received in Jesus Christ. Let me pray and we'll bring it to an end. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and for your grace, for the privilege of knowing that you are present with us, for the honour of knowing you as our God and as our Saviour, and for the blessing of being dealt with uniquely, we thank you that you alone are God and there was no one, there is no one beside you. And that our security is held in your hands. Father, we ask for you to dismiss us and that if we ourselves are going through struggles, if we are going through hard times, you, Lord, will minister to each of our hearts. That you, Lord, will reveal to us just the work that you are doing in each of our lives, individually and corporately as a church. So, Lord, we commit ourselves to you now. We ask for you to dismiss us. And please continue to reveal more of yourself to us that we might fall more in love with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.